This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. You are now listening to British Birds, the True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this week I have a special guest joining me for a chat. She's a forensic psychologist, private investigator and a crime writer who has written several books. As a practicing psychologist, she has worked in prisons for the Board of Parole for the Superior Court of San Diego and as a workplace investigator of misconduct allegations, including harassment, discrimination and violence. She currently evaluates mentally disordered offenders up for parole and provides expert testimony in criminal and civil litigation. Joining me all the way from the West Coast of America, please welcome to the show, Dr. Joni. Johnston, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. I love how in that introduction I say exclusively British. We only do British, which up until <laughs> this point we kind of have. But when you reached out to me on LinkedIn, I was like, okay, I've never had a forensic psychologist on the show. That needs to happen. So I'm really happy that you were up for it. I love talking about these kinds of topics, I guess, because that's what I do every day. So it's really interesting to me and luckily some other people seem to find it interesting as well so yeah do you think there's something innately not wrong with people but do you think it's bizarre how we have such an obsession with a subject that is so morbid as true crime and murder and just criminal escapades in general I suppose I think it is interesting. I've asked, been asked that question so many times, you know, why are people so interested in true crime? And there's so many different theories out there, you know, oh, it's kind of for safety reasons. We're trying to get tips about how to stay safe, or it's kind of like a, you know, a scary movie in real life where you kind of, you know, you're not in danger, but you're vicariously experiencing that. And I don't know that any of those theories really fit, you know, that we really know, maybe little bits and pieces of all of them do, but I kind of feel like in some respects, the extremes of human behavior are interesting to all of us. So whether it's the superheroes that we're all interested in, you know, Schindler's List, Oscar Schindler is fascinating, you know, people who do amazing, extraordinary things in extraordinary times. And then, unfortunately, the reverse is also true. And I think a lot of times we look at people who do really bad things and we just are like, it's almost like we think of them as not human beings in some respects. It's kind of like, how could somebody do that? 
you know, how, why would somebody do that? And I think that kind of gets the ball rolling. But I can tell you, I was definitely a true crime consumer before I became a forensic psychologist. Yeah, I was reading that it was the book Helter Skelter that kind of got you into things when you were a teen. It was, um, because I was inappropriately reading (laughs) a lot of true crime books um, at a very early age. but yeah, I remember being on this vacation, which you know, when you're 14, it's your worst nightmare of being stuck in the car for two weeks with your parents, which Absolutely. I was, yeah, and um, brought all my books along with me. And Helter Skelter was actually a book my mom had been reading. So there is some probably genetic predisposition for me to be a true crime um, aficionado and uh, picked it up and just... I don't even know how to describe it. I mean, I was horrified by it. I was puzzled by it. I was fascinated by it. I just could not understand why someone would murder people they didn't even know. You know, we can all understand the crimes of passion. Somebody walks into a bedroom and catches their spouse in bed with somebody else and just completely goes berserk or whatever. But some of the crimes that serial killers commit are just so difficult, I think, to wrap our head around. Do you think people are more fascinated with serial killers as opposed to, say, one-off murders? Because a lot of the cases I cover are localized to small towns, small cities, and it's murders that aren't necessarily covered in the mainstream media, whereas your serial killers, the big ones in America we're aware of, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, you know, the list kind of goes on. In here, we also have people to that level within our country, but you could walk down the street realistically and knock on the first 10 houses and one of those houses would likely know someone somehow who has been murdered, whether it's a one-off, whether it's an accident. Why do you think we're so much more obsessed with the multiple killers? I certainly think in America, it's the, you know, we are a country of individualists and competitors, right? It's there's this whole huge sense of like being the biggest, being the baddest, being the best you know, making the most money and those kinds of things. I think that is part of it. There's a cultural part of it, I think, in, in the United States that we kind of look and kind of go, we want to see the biggest and most extreme. And I think, again, I think it is the sense of people getting away with things. And also, a, a lot of times, particularly we're talking about sexual serial killers, you know, the, some of the crimes are so bizarre themselves that they just become intriguing. But I will also say, I think, Stuart, that you're, some of the cases you cover, I'm sure, are incredibly fascinating. And I think because I think we're also fascinated by, you know, love triangles where somebody gets murdered or, you know, or cons- murder for hire or conspiracies and those kinds of things. So I think it's oftentimes the facts of the case that drive people's interest. And like I said, sometimes when you're talking about serial killers, whether it's somebody who, you know, kills for sexual reasons, or you have a woman who's poisoning her spouse over and over again, you know, several different spouses. Those are kind of unusual facts. They're not the norm. They're not somebody getting into a a fight in a bar and somebody accidentally dying or or some of the most quote common murders that we hear about. It's certainly interesting once you scratch the surface of any murder and look into the background of the victim, the killer, the family is interesting. I'm going to ask you something that I asked Another one of my guests, it was in relation to a case I researched. Now, this was a case in the 1990s, and the victims were sex workers. The fear at the time 
was that there was a serial killer specifically killing sex workers. As it turned out, I think there were three victims that were thought to be linked to one person, but they ended up being three different people. Do you think it's more terrifying to have one serial killer killing multiple people in that scenario? Or do you think it's actually a little bit more scary that multiple people are capable of murdering? So when, let me just ask you a couple of questions about this, mm-hmm. these cases. Are these cases, the women, were they involved in a relationship with each of their murderers? What were, kind of what were the facts of the individual murders? I think at least one of them was killed by their ex-spouse. Okay. The other two, from the top of my head, I can't remember. But as far as I'm aware, they were all separate murders. But I think you're right. The likelihood is they were killed by someone they were either involved with or someone they knew, which is generally the case, I believe. Right. And I think a lot of times, because you're right, that absolutely is the case. Right. That's why police always start closest to home and work their way out because they know the yeah. odds are they're going to find somebody close to home. And I think for that reason, serial killers oftentimes are more frightening to people even though statistically they're rare, but I think it's because there is this idea that anybody could be a victim. If this person is targeting strangers, then I might be that stranger. And I think that's in a way what is another reason that makes them so particularly scary to people. Not not to not to mention the media attention, right, that is given when somebody starts killing multiple people. But I think that really is what makes people so afraid. What's your opinion on nicknames that media give murderers? So, you know, like, I don't know, the Tennessee Butcher, let's say, <laughs> make one up, something like that. Does it not empower the killer? I think it definitely can. And I'm, I'm hoping that that's starting to change, um, particularly when they're given these kind of mysterious sounding names, the Night Stalker, you know, mm. that kind of thing. I think it does, in some respects, make it seem at least to some people that they're being glorified or being, you know, given these kind of really cool nicknames. And I do think we are slowly moving away from some of the really unfortunate coverage in the past, whether that's focusing exclusively on the perpetrator and not ever mentioning the victims at all, or like you're saying, like, you know, just having this person's entire life, regurgitated over and over and over again. Like you said, we all know who Ted Bundy is. I don't know how many documentaries or shows have been about Ted Bundy. It's like, okay, well, I understand, you know. And the other thing that to mention this to her, which is kind of interesting, is it's not just a serial killer because there are certain serial killers none of us have ever heard of. It's the attractive serial killers, right? It's So it, it's, this, it's always certain, so it's the attractive serial killers or objectively attractive serial killers, or it's the ones who do the extremely bizarre kinds of things. They're, mm-hmm. you know, cutting off the heads and eating their victims for dinner, you know, those kinds of things. So even when you're talking about serial killers, we're, we're only talking about a relatively small group that we all hear about and know about. And those are the ones who tend to get these kind of, these names, the killer clown or, you know, whatever. I was going to ask you as my, we've kind of moved past the icebreaker that I was going to ask, but it kind of fits into what we're discussing, which is good. In your professional opinion on the nature versus nurture argument, do you believe that people can be born inherently evil or are they simply a product of their environment? I believe, I don't believe that anybody is born inherently evil. I think that people can be born 
with certain things that are missing. So I think, for example, we know with psychopathy, there tends to be a genetic component to that. And there's some brain differences that you can see on the fMRI. And so we know that there are some brain differences, that there may be some, you know, and, and what that translates into, you know, is sometimes is a lack of empathy or an inability to recognize a fear in other people. And you can start seeing some of these differences from a relatively early age. You know, by age three or four, you start seeing children um, who start, you know, I would never call anybody, of course, they're not psychopaths when they're three years old, but you start seeing these kind of behavioral differences, this lack of recognition, you know, for fear, this kind of lack of empathy toward other children and those kinds of things. So I think that there are, you know, children or people who are born with some maybe deficits in some respects, but there are plenty of people, and most psychopaths don't kill anybody. You know, they, they don't murder people. They don't do horrible things. There can be very functional psychopaths. So I think it really does take a perfect storm, you know, to create like a serial killer, for example. So you have you, you may have this genetic predisposition, but I think oftentimes it's the environment that molds that predisposition into, you know, the person that he or she becomes. Would it be a fair comment to say that based on what you've said then about people can be born with, you know, different brain functionality, potentially lack of empathy, unable to sense fear in other people. Would it be fair to say that they are born with the potential to become someone as extreme as a serial killer rather than you can be born evil? Surely you can still be born with that potential if you have those deficits in your brain. Yes, I think that is definitely true. Um, I mean, there are people who have horrendous childhoods, horrible childhoods, who not only would never hurt anybody else, but have really kind of transformed those horrible experiences into becoming advocates, you know, to prevent that from happening to other children. So there's got to be something inherent about that, you know, some certain people that those horrible life experiences, not that all serial killers have horrible life experiences, although they're overrepresented, certainly um, in terms of looking at abuse and those kinds of things. So it's not just, it certainly is not just nature or just nurture. I um, mean, it's certainly, I don't think it's just nurture. I mean, I know plenty of people who had horrible childhoods beyond anything that I could even imagine and would never hurt anybody else. So yeah, I definitely think that there are these predispositions that certain people are born with. Same thing, you know, you see five kids in a family and one person becomes a serial killer. They had a similar upbringing. So why did the other four not turn out that way? Hmm. What's the psychology behind abuse? people who are abused, say, as children or bullied, who then go on to exhibit the exact same behavior on other people, other children? They always say bullies tend to be bullied at home. That's why they're bullied. What's the psychology behind that? Because from... From my point of view, I would think if you were bullied or abused in childhood, you wouldn't ever want to put that on someone else because of what you went through. And I think that's true for a lot of people. That thinking is true for a lot of people. There are plenty of people you know, that have been bullied who would never bully anybody else. But at the same time, there are so many factors that go into that. You know, Where is that coming from? Is this child being bullied at home? What are the consequences? for this child being bullied. I saw an inmate one time who, you know, everybody described this kid as just the most likable, kind of a sweet kid. 
and his parents had both of them had a serious drug problem and they had this little kind of group of, of adults who lived together and really had an antisocial lifestyle. I mean, their whole mentality was this is our four or five you know, little group here and we're the only ones who matter. So you can do anything to anybody else, cheat, rob, steal, whatever, because they don't count. It's the kind of the in group versus the out group to the extreme. And when this child showed any kind of kindness, really, or empathy to other children, he would be punished for that. Or if he you know, was victimized in some way, he would be punished for that because he didn't beat up the other kid. So it's so complicated, right? It's not just that somebody's been bullied. It's all the other factors that go in. What were the protective factors for that child? You know, sometimes people who are bullied and who don't become bullies, they have other people who care about them. They have other people who believe them. So it's just, you know, I wish it was that simple. I really do. But it's not. It's, you know, who bullies? What happens when they're bullied? You know, um, who cares about them? Um, what are the messages they're getting in their in their environment, in their neighborhood? What message are they getting from their family about bullying or about using aggression or violence to solve problems? And I, the reason I brought this inmate up that I'm thinking about is because it really did seem like at a certain point in time, the empathy that he, I think, really, truly had in talking to his teachers and was pretty much beaten out of him. And he went on at age 17 to murder somebody in a very premeditated kind of way. So I don't think this is somebody who was born with a predisposition, but I think that over time, um, and there were of course a million other factors that went into that, but um, I think that he became so indoctrinated into this you know, way of thinking, this kind of criminal mindset, that he ended up adopting that. And, um, you know, that was kind of the end of the story. What's your mindset when you're going in to speak to someone such as that kid who murdered someone at such a young age, but as far as you can tell, nice enough kid, seem, seems okay for the most part with strangers, but in the back of your mind, he's killed someone. What's that like? Well, what's interesting about that particular case that I'll answer that that one directly is that you know, this is a very one of the things I'm doing a lot of right now. I live in California, kind of mentioned that on the West Coast, and California passed a law a couple of years ago that for all inmates in California who were sentenced to life without parole as a juvenile, so under the age of 18, it must they, so clearly they committed some horrible crime, most often murder, if they because it's pretty, you know it's pretty hard to receive life without parole as a juvenile, but their people do. And if, if they were, they are now eligible to be reevaluated and possibly resentenced. So this okay. is a very new thing. So I'm going in now and seeing inmates who are now in their late thirties, early forties, mid forties, and looking at where they are now and trying to evaluate is this person capable of rehabilitation or have they been rehabilitated? Should they have a possibility of parole? And that's interesting and very complicated because I can tell you, and you know this, you know, I'm certainly old enough to know that I'm not the same person when I was 17 or 18 that I am now. And neither are these inmates. And so then it becomes, okay, what is the purpose of the criminal justice system? Is it to punish if it is, then for a lot of these inmates, you could make the argument that 
they're, they're never going to be in prison long enough if it's just to punish because of the things they did. They often took the lives of somebody who was innocent. If, on the other hand, the purpose is to rehabilitate, then, you know, I have to look at all the factors. What have they done since they've been in prison? How, you know, what kind of steps have they taken to rehabilitate themselves? All kinds of factors that go into that. Then this person probably does deserve a chance, at least, to get out one of these days. So it's just so, you know, it, it's just, it is complicated. Does California still have the death sentence or is that not applicable? California still has a death penalty, although um, our current governor, who's in his second term, when he first got into office, made it very clear that even though it still stands in California, it hasn't been outlawed, there would be no executions during his terms. So it's, it's more in theory. I can't even remember the last time somebody has been executed in California. Now, Texas, on the other hand, yeah. or you know, some of the other states, it's like yeah. that would not be the place to, to, to run amok. I'll put it yeah. that way. I saw a very interesting documentary a couple of years ago. It was in a, a state. It might have been Texas or similar. And it was one of the, is it three drugs for lethal injection, I believe, that the I think it's either two or three. But one of the drugs had an expiration date within 12 months, let's say. And whoever was in charge at the time was trying to push through and fast track some of the executions. Some people have been on death row for decades, trying to fast track the executions and the lawyers were trying to get stays of execution and stuff. Really strange documentary. But what is your opinion on the death penalty? Boy, it's interesting. I think that my opinion of the death penalty has changed over the years. When I first finished graduate school, I worked with victims and I can remember just seeing the pain of some of the victims and particularly the families. And I remember at one point, I'm not particularly proud of this, but I remember at one point thinking I could personally pull the switch. Like this is when there was the electric chair because Mm -hmm. it was so traumatic to me to witness some of the pain that some of these crimes caused. And then I have, over the years, I still work with victims, but I've worked more with perpetrators and evaluating perpetrators. And I've come to believe, I I just personally can't embrace the death penalty anymore. I just don't see a purpose for that. I don't think as a society, that's a good reflection of our values to say we're going to take somebody's life. I guess I could make the argument that perhaps the victim's family should have more say in that than anybody else, but then that's also kind of arbitrary. I mean, some people are going to have people who are willing to forgive, or they have some, you know, religious beliefs against the death penalty, and other people would feel the opposite of that. So um, I understand all the different perspectives. I do. I teach a lot of uh, graduate students, and I always tell them, "Promise me, as a forensic psychologist, you will work." at some point in your life with both victims and perpetrators, because until you do both, you don't see the gray, you know, things are so easily black and white. And I've met people in, in prison who I was afraid of and felt like I'm glad they're here. <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. I, I'm hoping they don't get out <laughs> for a long time. And I've met people that I felt like I'd be friends with if the situation was different. And so I've just come to appreciate that just like we're all 
gray in terms of, you know, we have good and bad and all that kind of stuff. That's often true of perpetrators as well. Without feeling the need to name names, what's the scariest either prisoner you've spoke to or the scariest situation you've been in might be a better way of phrasing it. Um, it's interesting because I worked at a maximum security prison for two years. And so you're much more, I guess, at risk. What I do now, I go into a bunch of different prisons and do a lot of evaluations, as I mentioned to you earlier. And so I'm not really in any risk because they'll bring the inmate out to a special room. But when you're working inside of a prison, you're walking the yards, right? So you're going, you know, you're walking out the yards, you're going back in the cell sometimes and those kinds of things. You're going into ADSEG, which is this segregation unit where inmates who've gotten in trouble are now segregated um, from their peers. Um, and so, you know, I used to have to do things like wear a, a stab vest, <laughs> these big old clunky things in case somebody tried to stab you and a spit guard sometimes or if they spit on really? you, you know, that kind of thing. Wow. So it all looked kind of very scary on the outside. But I will tell you two things. Uh, one is when you think about who an inmate is going to go after, if they're going to go after somebody, psychologists are way down on that list. Number one, they're going to go after another inmate, right? That's number one. Number two is going to be a custody officer who's made them mad. Number three, if they have a mental health problem and about a third in the United States are diagnosed with some kind of mental health issue. So not most, but a significant minority. You might go after the psychiatrist if the psychiatrist is wanting you to take medication that you don't want to take. But psychologists, for the most part, are seen as helpers. You know, somebody who can get me something, whether that's therapy help, whether that is a transfer to a yard because I have a drug debt on this yard and I'm about to get the boom lowered on me if I don't get out of here. You know, there's so, you know, I have never felt personally threatened. I've never had any reason to worry about that. Now, I've seen inmates who were in the middle of a psychotic break and very agitated and pacing and that kind of thing. They weren't in any way targeting me. They were just so agitated, but they're so contained at that point that nobody's going to be. Everybody kind of knows that. One of the scariest situations that I saw, I was doing uh, coverage on the weekend one time and a custody officer called me um, and said, could you come evaluate this inmate? I'm kind of worried about him. He's just acting really strange. And I went over and I sat down with him and you know, I started talking to him and he started telling me that the custody officer, the one who had called me, that he had been told by God that this custody officer was the devil who was in disguise and this custody officer was going to start killing inmates pretty soon. And that was so terrifying to me because, you know, in this person's mind at this point, he was getting ready to act in self-defense, right? So he's thinking that this custody officer is going to hurt him and other inmates. And so it was scary because if this custody officer had not contacted me, had not been, he was just a great custody officer. He really was very in tune. And it was amazing. He even noticed that this inmate was kind of acting odd. And we, the situation quickly got resolved and, you know, and he ended up, he was, he had a mental health history and he ended up getting back on his medication. He, everything was fine. But I believe something really bad would have happened if he had not, you know, reached out to me and I had come over to evaluate him. Because I remember sitting there listening to this guy and I'm just thinking, you know, it was like a bomb ready to go off. 
And so that was a situation that was scary for that, you know, for that reason, to think that something really bad could have happened. And then the scariest inmate, he wasn't the scariest inmate. That was the scariest situation I think that I've seen. The scariest inmate that I saw, and I never really knew what his diagnosis was, or even what his crime was. I did hear later that it was a pretty serious one. But I think this man must have had some kind of intellectual impairment because he he literally, the only way I can describe it is he was so violent, but he was violent like there was no break at all between what he wanted and his act, you know, his action to get it. And it's like, it wasn't even adaptive, meaning, you know, it wasn't like a strategic kind of thing. It was like a child in a weird kind of way. Like he would become so violent if he didn't get what he wanted. He was often in segregation. And I, like I said, I truly think something was wrong with him, um, you know, intellectually or, or neurologically or something, because I felt bad for him because he, he just seemed to have no control whatsoever. Um, and, and really, I, I wondered at one point if he should have even been incarcerated because it, he, it just seemed like such a lack of self-control. And I don't mean that from a psychological standpoint. I mean that from almost like a neurological standpoint. And he was very scary because he was so unpredictable. And the custody officers were afraid of him because of that, that he would just go off. I mean, you, you learn pretty quickly in prison that it's not going to be to your benefit to hit a custody officer. You know, I mean, it's, there's nothing good that's going to come out of that for you. You know, it just isn't. And, you know, most inmates who might come in with an attitude or, or whatever, you know, they have to do a little testing to see what they get away with. I mean, that's kind of a normal thing. But this guy, like I said, he'd been in prison for over 10 years and was just still just really out of control. So he was the scariest inmate I've ever seen. And there's something quite comforting in predictability, I imagine, especially in such a scenario as that. Yes. Yes. And it's, and it's such a controlled environment. It's rare to see that lack of predictability because of the structure, right? That's already in place. Absolutely. You briefly mentioned psychiatrists earlier. I wanted to ask you, and it might be a daft question, psychiatrists, psychologists, in my mind, I know they're different, but they both deal with the mental side of things. What Briefly, in layman's terms, what's the difference between the two? Forgive my naivete. No, it's, I think it's a, it's a common question. It really is. And, um, you know, the simple answer is a psychologist has a PhD and a psychiatrist is a medical doctor, an MD. What that means practically in the United States pretty much now, things have gotten more and more segregated in the healthcare system, is that I think psychiatrists do, do more and more just medication prescribing. That They do much less treatment of you know, of people and they do a lot more medication prescribing where psychologists tend to do more psychological testing and therapy. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay. So have you been involved with, say someone's been convicted of murder and the trial date is set. Would it be your responsibility or have you ever had the responsibility of deeming whether someone's legally fit to stand trial? Yes. 
What would that consist of? What would that assessment involve? Being competent to stand trial is a very low bar. I mean, really, you have to understand, you know, the charges against you. You have to understand the role of the criminal justice system. You have to understand what the judge does. You have to understand what your attorney does. You have to understand that you have the right to participate and you have to have the ability to participate in your defense. I mean, most people can understand those things. And if you don't, then my job is to tell you about those things. So if I'm evaluating somebody, you know, and I, I ask them those kinds of simple questions, um, you know, what does a judge do? You know, what does your attorney do? What does the prosecutor do? What are, you know, it's a very low bar. It's just, you know, can, does this person understand the charges against him? Can they participate in their own defense? If the answer is yes, it doesn't matter what kind of other issues they have, what kind of psychiatric diagnosis they have, what kind of mood they're in. If they understand that they're competent to stand trials, very different from insanity which is you know, much more complicated. Um, the reason somebody would not be, for example, would be not competent to stand trial is let's say that, um, let's say I'm on trial for murder and you are evaluating me and I'm telling you that the, the legal system is, the, you know, that the government is, is a conspiracy, right? And the judge is involved in a conspiracy. My attorney's involved in a conspiracy to kind of put me behind bars and I'm refusing to talk to my attorney. That would be a situation where my beliefs or my mental state is interfering with my ability to participate, right? And that, so those are the kind of things you see. Or if I'm so delusional that I'm not making sense or I'm so paranoid or whatever. So I can have any kind of psychiatric diagnosis, but unless it's interfering with my ability to understand the court proceedings and participate in them, I'm going to still be found competent to stand trial. Do you ever get people being disingenuous and trying to get out of the trial by just answering no to everything? Yeah, I mean, that really rarely happens. You find that more in, with insanity pleas where people are trying to do that because they're trying to, you know, there is a different thing. All you're doing if you're trying to fake incompetency is you're delaying. You know, you're, you're still going to meet, you know, you're still going to have to face that, that judge or jury at some point. Um, and in the meantime, you're going to have to go to a psychiatric hospital and you're going to have to receive whatever your treatment team thinks is necessary for you to regain competency. So there's not a lot of motivation to fake incompetency. Now, people do. But here's the thing. You might go to the psychiatric hospital and you're faking. You know, that's, your, that's your goal. I'm going to put this off as long as I possibly can. It is not difficult to fake it necessarily with me if, if I'm seeing you for a couple of hours. But it's much harder when I talk to your custody officer or I talk to people who see you every day, all day. People have a really hard time <laughs> maintaining that. And so whenever you're doing a forensic evaluation, the first thing you know is you, you don't just rely on what the person's telling you. You are going to check. I'm going to be talking to people who see you every day and see you all day. And so if I'm, you know, if what I'm hearing is, well, he's out there playing basketball with the inmates and doing blah, 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 or he's negotiating for an extra helping of, you know, at, at lunchtime or whatever. I mean, it's just difficult. It's more, it's more difficult to fake than you think. And then, of course, there's psych testing, which we have kind of validity scales, which can help say this person is pretending to be sicker than he probably is and those kinds of things. So there are some ways to reduce the chance the person's going to be um, able to fake it. 
It makes sense. I don't know why, but for, for some reason I thought someone just went in a room with you, you asked them a few questions and that was it. I, I don't know. I didn't even think, oh, you just ask people that know them. You mentioned there is a difference between competency and insanity. What is that line like? Is it quite a, a thin line or is it one extreme to the other? It's a huge line because you're really evaluating very different things. So if I'm evaluating whether somebody is competent to stand trial, I'm evaluating how this person is functioning right now. You know, is this person today, is this person tomorrow able to understand the charges against them and able to participate in their defense? Doesn't matter what they were like a month ago, six months ago, when the crime allegedly happened, any of that. And as I mentioned to you, I'm not evaluating the person's mental state only to the extent that it fits that narrow criteria. In other words, I'm interested in, do you understand the legal process? Do you understand the charges against you? And can you participate? That's all I'm interested in when we're talking about competency or competency to stand trial. When I'm evaluating somebody for NGRI or not guilty by reason of insanity, it's completely different. Number one, which is, makes it very challenging, is I'm basically trying to look at a crystal ball and see the past. You may be perfectly logical and rational right now. Maybe you got on some medication and now I'm talking to you or I'm talking to this inmate just like you and I are having a conversation. But six months ago, when this person stabbed the person waiting at the bus stop and killed them for no apparent reason, just out of the blue, this person may have been a very different frame of mind. When I'm evaluating insanity, what matters is, what, how is this person functioning at the time the crime committed? Did this person have a serious mental health disorder? And if they do, was it to the, to the degree that they either didn't understand that what they were doing was wrong or they couldn't appreciate what they were doing was wrong? So the appreciation part just means, for example, if we had a case recently where a man murdered his three-year-old and 10-month-old children under the belief that he, that they had serpent DNA and that they were going to grow up to be these horrible monsters. Now, he knew that he was going to be judged for this. He knew he was probably going to be punished for this. He knew that in the eyes of the law, that what he was doing was wrong. So he knew that, but he didn't appreciate it in the sense that he believed he was sacrificing these children who had this terrible DNA for the greater good because they were going to wreak havoc or destruction on the world if they were allowed to grow up. Now, I wasn't directly involved in this case. So this is a research subject, not something I was involved in. But that could potentially be an example of somebody who knows what they're doing is wrong from a legal standpoint, but can't really appreciate in the sense that they think they're doing something to help for the greater good. So an argument could be made in that situation. I'm not saying it will be or it will be found acceptable if, if it is. But that's the difference between the kind of, you know, did they know they were right, it, it was wrong, or could they appreciate that it was wrong? So insanity is looking back at the time of the crime and it's evaluating again, you know, was the person's severe mental illness so severe at the time that they committed the crime that they either didn't understand what they were doing was wrong or they couldn't appreciate what they were doing was wrong? Right. So it's almost like from a high level, 
One is the past and one is kind of the present being the competency. That's right now. Can you stand trial? Are you fit? The other one is more committed on when you did the crime in the past. What was your mental state like? That's interesting. I never heard it put that way. That's a really interesting way of putting it. It is interesting to me, of course. (laughs) I think it's really interesting. (laughs) It says here as well, I, I sort of mentioned, I think before recording, I've sort of stalked your CV to get an idea of uh, the stuff you do, the stuff you've been. You, you've been a teacher at some point. You've been in psychology you know, for decades at this point. One of the things I was interested in was being called to be an expert witness. So I'm assuming this would be during a trial if they needed an expert just to explain how something worked rather than being on the side of the defendant or the prosecution. Is that how it would work? What's that experience like if you are called as a witness? Sometimes I'm called as an expert witness to talk about, you know, whether it is, you know, sexual trauma. What is the impact of sexual trauma on somebody? Or what is a personality disorder? So more of a general, like, subject matter expert. But I'm also called sometimes to, after I've evaluated somebody who, for example, is pleading insanity. And so I could be hired by the court which is more the independent person, I could be hired by the defense or by the prosecutor. And my opinion is independent of that. And so I go in and I evaluate this person. And so I am then testifying that based on my evaluation of this person, yes, I do think this person was legally insane at the time of trial or I mean, at the time of the crime or no, I don't. So what's, I'm just trying to figure out, because I've never been called to jury service yet. And obviously, I'm not an expert witness like you are. But say you're due to appear at trial. Let's let's sort of do a day in the life of you're due to appear at court to testify. What's the general? How long are you there? Do you do you just turn up, say your piece, and leave, or do you have to hang around or prepare? Well, you definitely prepare because it's very stressful. Yeah. Obviously, you prepare. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. When you actually get there on the day. <laughs> you bring your notes with you, yeah. Um, you, you actually, you actually do. You bring all, you know. If I let's so let's say I have a, let's have a hypothetical situation. I've evaluated this person, this inmate. His defense uh, wants to plead insanity, or he's ar- arguing this. I've been asked to evaluate him either by the prosecutor or the defense. I get a subpoena. So um, oftentimes it's kind of a formality. So you know, a lot of times, even you know. Depending if I'm if I'm called by the courts, I will get a subpoena. Even though they call me and say, "Are you available this date?" It's not how we think of a subpoena. Like all of a sudden, somebody tracks you down at McDonald's and you know ambushes you and says, "Here's your subpoena." It's they call you and say, "Okay, are you available?" You know, the trial is going to start Monday during this week. Are you available Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? You, you figure that out. You bring all you know. I bring all of the my notes. I bring all the things that I've collected, the testing or whatever that I've done. Um, mm-hmm. they'll say, okay, we think we're going to have you on the stand at nine. Can you be down there at eight 30? You go, you sit outside on the bench because you can't hear obviously any other testimony that's going on because you're, you need to be an objective person. They don't want you hearing what other people are saying. And so, you know, you wait. And then of course you think you're going to go on at nine and then 10 o'clock, <laughs> 10 o'clock comes and they come out <laughs> and said, we have a recess or whatever. I mean, so it rarely happens that you're on. Sometimes if you're there, if you call first thing in the morning, you actually are able to go on. But you, once you're there, you're pretty much there unless something happens and they adjourn for the day and then you come back. But And then in terms of how long you're on the stand, 
it just depends on how many questions they have. So, you know, what will happen is that the, um, depending upon what side has retained you or who you're, I should say, who you're, you know, whose opinion you, you know, your report favors sometimes, because sometimes, you know, it can be kind of tricky. I, I did an evaluation recently for a defense attorney and I, I went back and said, you know, I've got some bad news for you in the sense that there's just no evidence that I can find that this person was legally insane at the time of the trial. There's just no evidence of that. There's no psych history, blah, 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 blah. The person's got a strong history of drug use. I mean, you know, his mom said the only thing wrong with him is he never could get his life straightened out. Well, that's not an insanity plea. I mean, that's a bummer, you know, for his family. Um, so, so yeah, so you're called by the person who's, you know, typically the person who's who thinks your report favors, you know, either side, and they'll run you through your credentials. This is Dr. Johnston. Tell us about your, you know, your CV. And are you, are you, you know, qualified to test to testify? And that's pretty, it's, again, it's really formality because you've already been, you know, you wouldn't be testifying if a judge didn't already approve you, but they still run you through that for the jury so they can know that you are in fact competent to, to talk about. And then they just run you through the report and ask you all the questions that you found and why you think this and what did you base it on? And then the other side gets up and tries to say, no, this is wrong. Or, you know, tries to kind of counter that to some extent, not, not all the time, but if you're testifying, then there are, that is going to happen because one of the big myths about the insanity plea is that there, it's always this battle of the experts, right? That you, you always have the psychologist on one side who says, yes, this person is legally insane. And then you have the psychologist on the other side that says, no, this person was not insane. That happens sometimes, but honestly, in, insanity pleas, which are very rare in and of themselves, most of the time there's an agreement before the trial. So if the person is found, you know, to be that severely mentally ill. Most of the time, the prosecutor of the defense, they know that and they agree and they work out some kind of a plea deal. Do you have a rough idea of the questions you're going to be asked? You do. You definitely do. Um, because it's a pretty structured evaluation. Um, and sometimes to greater or lesser degrees, when, I, when I'm asked by the court to do it, I don't typically have an idea in the sense that the attorney doesn't typically call me up. But I've, I know my, what my report says. All the attorneys have had a copy of my report. The judge has a copy of my report. So I know pretty much what they're going to be asking me. Okay. But if you didn't, <laughs> if you went, you went, you prepared your report, didn't revise your notes, and <laughs> you get asked a load of questions from the opposite side. Yeah, I think it's in, in that respect, I think it's, it's, there's, you're likely to get more of a wild card when you're testifying as a subject matter expert. Because even though you know your subject matter, you know, there's new research that comes out all the time. And so, you know, sometimes if, you know, one side doesn't like the subject matter experts testimony or whatever, they can always find one tiny article, right, from 2001. Right? <laughs> Have you read yeah. the 2001 article in the Journal of whatever? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and there's no way you've read everything. So I think you're more likely to get a wild card in that situation. What does the forensic aspect of your title actually refer to? Because I know there's forensic psychology, there's, I believe, criminal psychology, which sound very similar. What does the forensic prefix to psychologists, I suppose, what does that mean? What does that mean that you look into that's different? Forensic psychology is really 
using psychology to address a legal question. So in this context, that's what that means. So it could be testifying in a custody evaluation. It can be custody, you know, testifying in insanity plea or evaluating somebody. It could be evaluating violence risk or threat assessment. So when you are addressing some legal question by using psychology, that's what that forensic psychology means. Okay. Where, where the two overlap. Criminal psychology just means I'm really, I'm a forensic psychologist. I only do criminal work. Okay. I'm with you. And I could probably at this point, I've done civil work in the past. I pretty much do. I like criminal work better just personally. And so I, I guess I could call myself a criminal psychologist, but there's no real designation for that in the United States. I mean, people call themselves that, but there's nowhere you go to kind of go. Now I'm a criminal psychologist. So I just say forensic and then, but I specialize in doing criminal work. So how did you actually get into it? Because I see that you went to Auburn University, Florida Tech as well. Was that, obviously you read the book at 14 and you've got, you know, your your mum wasn't it that likes true crime also. So it was kind of in your DNA, as you mentioned. But at what point did you think that's a career I want to follow? And then eventually, how did you end up in the psychology aspect of it? Well, you know, a hundred years ago when I was in graduate school, um, <laughs> there, there, uh, there was no such thing as a degree in forensic psychology. It was, you know, you were either, uh, um, you were a clinical psychologist, you could be a counseling psychologist, you could be an experimental psychologist, or you could be a social psychologist. That was pretty much it. So if you were interested in any kind of practice, people tended to go, well, counseling was more like in universities and more kind of well people problems, if I put it that way in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you would, so for people who are interested in more, I guess, mental illness kinds of practice, you would then get a degree, as I did, in clinical psychology. And so I got my degree in clinical psychology. And then, but I always knew I was interested in the law. And so I got a job. My first job, as I mentioned earlier, was working with the child welfare system when I was in Dallas, Texas. And so I just picked that because I was interested in it. And I worked um, exclusively at that time. Well, I shouldn't say that because there were some offenders I worked with as part of the therapy process. But primarily, I worked with families, um, children and families where incest had occurred and there was an attempt to see, um, to do some risk assessment from the offenders and also to see if reunification was possible for this family. So uh, treating the children, treating the other spouse and seeing if reunification was possible. So I worked a lot with the foster care system as well as with the, you know, the family, child family services. So that's how I got started really in forensic psychology, although I didn't think of it as forensic psychology then, because I don't think I'd ever even heard the word forensic psychology. And then when I went to private practice, I specialized in doing a lot of that. All right. We know a lot of worked with a lot of adolescents um, who had behavior problems in the juvenile justice system, but I always had this interest. I don't know why, maybe it was my true crime uh, experience or love or whatever, but I always had wanted to work in a prison. I was just kind of interested in that, but it's a very specialized area. And as you might imagine, prisons are not in big cities for the most part. They're out in the boondocks, right? So and I never really had that opportunity, but we moved, we moved out to California in 1996. Um, there was a, 
media maximum security president. And I was talking to my husband and said, I've always wanted to do this. You know, I, I want to do it. And so I did it. And I was probably the only person in the world who was happy going to work or going to a prison every day. Um, <laughs> but I absolutely, I really, really, really enjoyed working um, in that environment, I guess, because I, you know, a lot of it was crisis work, which I enjoyed. And I felt like I could make a difference in that environment in, in some way, maybe not in the way that we all think about going to therapy, but it was a different kind of work. Um, but I, I really, really enjoyed it. But it was very difficult work. And I had four kids at the time. And so, you know, after a few years, it was kind of like, I, you know, you can't just leave. I mean, your hours might be eight to five, but if somebody's suicidal or whatever, you're not just going to be like, you're going to have to hold that till tomorrow morning at eight. You know? <laughs> I'll be back. And I'm so it clock. was exactly. So one fourth of July, I worked uh, just as a, as a favor and I was supposed to be off at five and I got home at midnight. And, um, wow. you know, that was kind of a come to Jesus meeting with my husband after that. So I kind of transitioned <laughs> out of out of working in that environment and just began doing evaluations, which I've been doing a bunch of different ones since then. I was reading as well that you do, is this your business work relationships? Is this something you created where you, you, you do the similar thing, but rather than prisons, you do it in workplaces? Yes, I did that. I actually did that quite a lot, mainly though back in the 90s. And I just haven't transitioned my, my uh, email address, which I definitely should. Okay. But yeah, I, I, <laughs> yeah it's, been, it's been a while. Um, but, but yeah, I partnered with a labor law attorney for a number of years because I was already doing a lot of conduct, obviously, with the juvenile justice system and, you know, I, I, some of the um, offender work I was already doing. And so we were asked to come in and start doing training initially in the area of harassment, discrimination, workplace conduct issues, working with management about how do you handle those fitness for duty evaluations, when do you refer somebody for a fitness for duty evaluation. And over time, you know, they be, I began getting requests for investigations. So when a complaint was made in, in some situations, particularly if the person was high up in the company, it really wasn't in their best interest to hire H, or to have HR do that because it was a conflict of interest. And so they would hire an outside person to come in. And so I would come in and do that. Um, and it was really fascinating work. I really enjoyed it. Uh, but there was a lot of civil testimony involved sometimes. And I mean, it's just such a, an adversarial system in the United States. The civil courts, in my opinion, it's just, I think when money is involved, it just becomes so ugly so quickly. And so, you know, I was, I was already doing plenty of criminal work and I just realized over time that I just, my heart was in criminal work and it was just so much cleaner in some ways to testify and to evaluate defendants. And it mattered to me, I think more, about affecting the future of somebody more than the money part of it did. And so I kind of segued out. It's, I still do some uh, violence threat assessments, but that's about it. I don't like to do, like to do the investigations anymore because I don't, the civil part of it was, it wasn't a good match for my personality. Okay. You mentioned when you, you started working with victims and, you almost develop kind of a bias towards them. Yes. And then you started working with the defendants and then obviously you neutral, neutraled out, I guess is the best way I can put it. When you are speaking to people who you know have committed atrocious crimes, 
murder or otherwise. How hard is it to switch off your emotional civilian brain, let's call it, and be a professional? I think personally, I would find that quite hard. How do you find it? You know, it's not difficult to me. And I, I say that only not because I have some special gift, but when you are, when I was am working with an offender, number one, I'm doing mainly evaluations. So I'm not spending, you know, hours and hours and hours and hours over time with that person. But it's important to realize that the, the crime, it, that we are removed from that crime. Meaning if I walked into a crime scene and saw what happened and then met with somebody who had committed this crime, it would probably be more difficult. But I have a very specific role when I'm meeting with an inmate. And I have a specific question to try to answer. And in that context, it's not difficult for me to focus on that, on that task. And as I mentioned before, you know, I'm, I'm not working with serial killers, right? I'm not. I'm working mainly with offenders, I mean, violent offenders for sure. But they're still human beings. And so to that extent, I think I can find a common ground with that person in terms of establishing rapport and understanding where that person is coming from. I don't agree necessarily where they're coming from, but my job is to understand that and then take that information and put it in the context of all the other information I've gotten from different sources and try to make the best recommendation for everybody involved, including the community. Would a psychologist ever be called to a crime scene for any reason? Um, you know, I don't know. It seems like, in, and you could probably answer this um, in the UK, it seems like it's more likely in the UK that that might happen. I think that, that you're, you guys are on the cutting edge, I think, of a lot of things that we're lagging behind here in the States when it comes to like investigative psychology and, and those kinds of things. One of the things I got involved in a couple of years ago that I'm really, really interested in is um, this thing called psychological autopsy. So it's kind of like the equivalent of a physical autopsy in a weird kind of a way. When somebody dies and you have a physical autopsy, obviously you're kind of taking that person apart physically to try to figure out what happened. And the psychological autopsy is, so for example, if you have a teenager who dies of an overdose, the question is, did this person commit suicide or did this person accidentally overdose? Or maybe there's even the question, was this person murdered? And they can't tell, right? All the medical examiner can tell is this person died of an overdose. So sometimes the, you know, there's a very systematic way of evaluating, you know, talking to friends, get, looking at social media, talking to parents, talking to teachers, trying to, to basically put together a, you know, a timeline and to make some kind of assessment of why did this person die? Was this was this person trying to end his or her life, or was this an accident? Did this person have a drug history and those kinds of things? I think in some countries, you know, forensic psychologists do these routinely, but because they're relatively new in the United States, I, I have offered at times to do them for free, like you know, at a, for law enforcement. Because one of my pet peeves is to think that there would ever be a staged suicide, for example, knowing the devastation families experience 
when a loved one is lost to suicide. To think that somebody has murdered somebody and then staged it as a suicide is something that's very difficult for me personally. And, you know, I, I have a heart. I mean, I've been taken up. That offer has been taken up a couple of times. There's a real resistance, I think, still to having psychologists involved in an investigation or involved in a crime scene. So it occasionally happens, but not that often. It makes sense. I think I can see potential resistance from law enforcement, I think. Yes. Just because this is our baby. We're the experts here. You're the experts maybe in an office somewhere. So I kind of get that. I just wondered if it had ever been that situation. We might as well talk about, because you've written quite a few books, which is pretty cool. Just read a few of them out here. So I've got, is this your most recent one? 101 questions true crime fans ask. Is that your most recent work? Yes. I've been very lucky. I write a blog for psychology today and um, I've been doing it since it's either, I can't remember if it's 2007 or 2010. I don't know why those stick in my, in my head, but a long enough time. And it's about, it's a law and crime kind of psychology blog. And so I've gotten a lot of questions over the years from the readers that read the different blogs and you know, obviously people are interested in serial killers. So over when COVID was going on, I have kept track of all these questions. And so I thought, I'm just going to answer those questions. And initially it was more like, I'm just going to answer them just to make sure I know the answer to these questions. And then I thought, you know, I'm just going to turn it into a book. And so that's how that, that idea came about. What about some of your older work then? I see you, you've done a fair few books on understanding, overcoming and controlling anxiety. There's a lot of books called The Idiot's Guide too. Is that is that yeah. part of a series? Yeah. Oh gosh, yes. Back yeah, years ago. I mean, yeah, at least I can't even tell you when. Early two thousands, maybe. Uh, I had a, a, a literary agent, and he would get so frustrated because I, I just had so many different interests, and he's like, "Look, you, you just got to specialize in one thing." And I'm like, "I can't. I'm just interested in all these different things." He's like, "Well, that's not the way to be successful." And I'm like, well, that's, I'm sorry. I just can't, I'm interested in too many things. And so I, one day he called me up and he goes, I've got the perfect book for you. How about psychology? <laughs> it's like, so they, they were looking for somebody to write the complete idiot's guide to psychology. But that was when there was, there was a, the complete idiot's guide. There were, what was the other one? Oh, dummies, like psychology for dummies was the competitor, yeah, yeah. I guess. Series, yeah. yeah. So remember that whole series? And so mm-hmm. And so he said, you know, would you be interested in writing? And I go, yes, this would be fantastic. And so I wrote it and it was so much fun to write. And it was used in a lot of classrooms kind of as an adjunct because it was hopefully pretty friendly reading and stuff like that. And then they were looking for somebody to write um, the complete idiot's guide to controlling anxiety. And um, that was kind of an easy one for me to do. I have a personal history of anxiety long ago, so that I could draw upon that. Um, I have a family history. And so it was like, yeah, that's another good book for me. And so, but it was kind of odd because for years I've written these other books that have nothing to do with forensic psychology. And yet I was, I've been a forensic psychologist for 20 years. And so I was really excited to finally write a book that was more in line with what I do every day. So that was this last one. The psychology book was the most fun in terms of thinking about young people reading it. That was exciting yeah. to me. And then the serial killer 101 questions true crime fans asked was exciting because it was personally very interesting to me and it was more in line with what I do every day. I can tell looking at your list of things that you've 
done and that you're doing you're quite similar to myself in that respect i found it quite hard to niche down especially when it comes to well i want to do the podcast well i want to do a video i also want to do a blog i also want to have a family and i also want a job and i also want to work out eat healthy do <laughs> do, do a million different things because you're writing articles for i don't again depending on how up to date this is the mind detective the newsletter you you did something in psychology today the human equation and then you've got the youtube thing unmasking a murderer were you on a radio show thread of evidence for a while i actually managed to let something go which is which is rare Robert's got yeah, to go. <laughs> it's like yeah it's funny i know sir i we, we were peas in a pod it sounds like when it comes to that i just you can't do everything and um I should say, I can't do everything. And yet it's hard for me. It's easy for me to take things on because I'm, I'm so lucky. I love what I do. I have a passion for it. You know, my idea of play is really writing about forensic psychology. It's kind of, I kind of, kind of think of it as my hobby in a way, because I really enjoy it. But yeah, you're right. I, I limit myself sometimes by taking on too many things. So I did make some decisions um, a few months ago, just thinking this is not, sustainable. And so I let go of threat of evidence, my YouTube channel. I really want to get back to that because I so enjoy doing that, but it also went by the wayside for a little bit. So I'm having to make some tough decisions, but it feels better to make decisions than to just let things happen, like not do things because I don't have time to do them versus yeah. to go, let's make a plan. How about that idea? Yeah. The planning is always the toughest thing. Like I've got an app on my phone. It's called to-do list. And one day I'll get into it. I'll put 10 things on there and I'll cross them off. Yeah. And then I'll just, I'll, I'll go back in three weeks and I'll see stuff that I've already done. I'll, oh, this is, I thought this would be a really good idea. I think the most organization I have is I have a calendar on my phone, which I forget to fill in. And then I've got a spreadsheet with all my episodes on it, but it's still pretty disorganized like it's just it's hard to say no isn't it especially when you're passionate about something and I think if you are a creative it's difficult to turn things down because you've it's the fear of missing out yes it definitely is I have a son who's an adult and I have to say he is probably my best friend in that way like he will send me messages because he knows that's a weakness of mine. And so I'll get messages from him sometimes about, you know, eat that frog. Have you read that book about doing the most no. difficult thing? It's really, it's really a kind of a cute book, but it's what the big takeaway is, you know, do the most difficult thing you have to do first. That's why it's called eat that yeah. frog, you know? Yeah. Um, and he'll send that to me and then he'll talk, he'll send me little messages about staying on track or, you know, saying no and those kinds of things, because I'm, I know what you mean. I, I'll do exactly the same thing. It'll be Monday morning. I look my to-do list. And then three weeks later, I'm like, oh yeah, there, there it is. Well, I did eight of those, but I haven't done these two and I've got yeah. 10, 10 up more now. But Yeah, it is. you do, well, I certainly do work what I would consider the, less important tasks first so you mentally you think i've done five or six things today yeah you think yeah but they're not due for three weeks and you've got an episode to write next week that's what you need to be focusing on so yeah but i've done 10 <laughs> things that needed doing next year but that's not what's important it is hard when you've got that big thing lurking in the background and then you wake up the next day it still needs doing 
you've still got yeah. to do it and now you're a day behind because you're a day closer to your deadline so yeah i'll have to check out that but what's it called eat the frog first what's it called i think it's called eat that frog eat that frog okay I was going to point out, you know, you mentioned subpoena earlier. I think we would call that a, a summons here in the UK. Okay. Completely irrelevant point, but I had a tab open. I just forgot to say it. My memory's terrible. I've got a really bad memory. It's important to translate those things. I appreciate you, you doing that because, yeah. when you know, if people aren't familiar with those terms, it's like, what does that even mean? Do you get much constructive criticism or do you, do you get anyone that's trying to troll you? You know, I have to say, and maybe it's because I haven't been doing it long enough, but I have been amazed at the support I've gotten because I, you know, did it every two weeks for a while. And then I literally didn't do one for three or four months. And then I didn't do one. And I thought, you know, that's just, I mean, because everybody that I know, which is completely true, says you've got to be consistent. You've got to be consistent. And I have my favorite podcast and I'm really annoyed if there's not one, because I love them. I look forward mm -hmm. to them. It's a treat. And and I just would get involved doing other things. And I, I do some interviews for some of the investigation discovery shows. And so when the, their season would come around, I would drop my podcast and do other things because, of course, they have a much bigger audience. And it's fun working mm -hmm. with some of the producers. They're super nice and super smart. And it was easy to do. Um, and I have to say, I've really been grateful and humbled by the support I've gotten from really 99%. I, I'm thinking of a couple of people who, you know, made comments about my occasional Southern accent, which I'm sorry, but that's probably here to stay. <laughs> if that's all that they've got to be critical about, then I think you're winning. I think you're winning. Well, so I, I, I feel very lucky. I do. I, mean, I don't know if it's because, you know, maybe being a forensic psychologist, people kind of give me a pass on things or they're just nice but I've been so appreciative of the support I've gotten from people what do you do to relax in your spare time I do a lot of exercise which actually is relaxing after the fact after you've done yeah. it not during know. but after I'm yeah. not during but after so I, I'm big on that and then we have a new relatively new we fostered about 65 dogs so far and so we really wow. enjoy that but we now have Freddie um, who is an eight-month-old Perinian Mastiff. So he's about 110 pounds, and he's going to be about 160. Is that the one asleep in the background? Can you see him? I, th I think I saw one cover. Oh, I'm this is sorry. I think I'm sorry. And he sort of sat down, and it went, doosh. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> so don't worry about it. We've got he dogs is, here. It's fine. I adore him, and he is really – this is my home office, which is where I am 99% of the time when I'm awake – and he is my office buddy. I love having him. <laughs> and so he's quiet. He's very quiet usually. And yeah. so I haven't minded him. But it's so funny. I told my husband this morning, I said, one of these days, I'm going to be on a meeting and he's going to go walking. And he's, I mean, he's huge. So he's going to go sauntering. <laughs> Here it is. <laughs> this is the one. This is the one. <laughs> he went, the one. It, was so, it was so quiet. And I thought, oh, and then he laid down. Boosh. Oh, bless. Yeah, he, well, I tell you, I was doing it. I was doing a, a little a talk show, just a, a small talk show the other day. And um, they were so nice and everything. And I'm sitting there. And all of a sudden, I hear <laughs> like, <in> uh. <laughs> snoring. And I'm thinking, can they hear this? Because they're, you know, sound quality is everything. 
yeah. they would tell me and nobody said a word. So I'm thinking they didn't hear it, but I was literally like with my foot trying to reach over, you know, like <laughs> nudge, ready to stop. But, um, but he has been such a joy. I think it's, I'll, we have four kids. Um, the last one left home to go to college. And so I think he's our, my new child and mm-hmm. he, but he's so sitting down and petting him or taking him to the dog park is one of the most relaxing things I can think about. So he yeah. has really become a huge, like he's my emotional support animal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they are therapeutic for sure. Absolutely. Aren't they? Yeah, they're, oh, they're really great. Yeah. Absolutely. What stuff have you got in the pipeline then? What can we expect to see from you, whether it's more books or, you know, stuff you're going to appear on, what you got coming up? Well, I'm definitely getting back to my unmasking a murder. I'm excited about doing that. I think because I've, I'm thinking one of my struggles with that has been this kind of push pull about true crime for myself, meaning I'm a psychologist and I like true crime, but I don't want to be exploitive of mm-hmm. anybody. And so I had yeah. this real dilemma for a while, like, should I be doing this? And so I'm hoping that when I start back and I just, I haven't put it out there because I want to make sure I have like four lined up. So I'm not doing one every six months, like I've yeah, kind of yeah. been doing, but I want to really focus on the story being the beginning of the discussion and then find a way to make sure I feel like that the story, which is interesting, and entertaining, and has to be um, entertaining and interesting because that's why people tune in. I'm interested in that, but it's kind of a starting point to talk about bigger picture things, you know, whether that's um, child abuse prevention, whatever it is, not to be preachy, but just to have more of a discussion about the psychology part of it. So I'm hoping I've kind of figured that out. So that's one of my priorities right now is to get back and start doing that more regularly. A book, I'm really enjoying writing articles. I love writing a book, but I think it would have to be the thing right now where somebody came to me with an idea and it it was a good fit. I don't feel like I'm in that space of having a great idea and wanting to do that right now. And then I, you know, I really enjoy doing interviews. And then of course I was telling you, I'm doing all these, they're called Franklin hearings, which is when you go out and you evaluate you know, inmates who were convicted or given life as a parole or life without parole as a teenager. I'm doing a lot of those. And that feels like such a meaningful work to me. So I'm really enjoying that. So those are things I know I'm going to be doing a lot of. And then I'm sure I'll say yes to whatever opportunities <laughs> come up <laughs> in spite of my, of my habit of doing that. It's kind of exciting and fun. Cool. Well, it's been an absolute joy to speak to you. And if you want to go to drjourneyjohnston.com, how up to date the website is, I will not comment and I can't confirm. <laughs> but drjourneyjohnston.com for any further information about Dr. Johnston. As I say, it's been fascinating picking your brain. First psychologist I've had on here, I went completely, I thought it was going to go one way, which I sent to you before. It, I'd, just kind of went the way it did which was pretty cool so i really appreciate your time and thanks for coming on if you've got any final words now's the time it was just an absolute joy it really was i so much enjoyed it um i love the questions i love the discussion it was really fun so thanks for having me and best of luck with this amazing podcast that you're doing thank you i appreciate that so everyone listening i hope you enjoyed that i certainly did hope you stuck with it till the end i know we've been going for an hour and a bit but If it's a good conversation, it's going to go on longer than short. So for everyone else, this is Stuart Blues for Dr. Johnny Johnston. Until next time, 
Cheerio. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.